We all saw the devastation from the wildfires in Maui toward the end of the summer. Obviously, several federal agencies sprung into action for rescue and recovery efforts. One particular agency many may not know plays a big role in helping people put their lives back together. The Small Business Administration is currently in the process of giving out millions in disaster assistance loans for those impacted by the Maui wildfires. To get an update on that effort, I talked to Francisco Sanchez Jr., who is Associate Administrator in SBA's Office of Disaster Recovery and Resilience. Administrator Guzman had the opportunity to join the FEMA administrator just a couple of days after the disaster declaration. And what we saw on the ground was that this was going to be a whole of community effort and a whole of federal family approach to get it on the road to recovery. The damage was certainly catastrophic. It's still early in terms of what the residents of Maui need to be doing to recover. So we've been on the ground since and our commitments to be there as long as it takes. And as far as commitment goes, when it comes to a financial standpoint, what has SBA assistance gotten up to? You know, the most recent figure I see was around $40 million. Are we, are we still around there, or is it probably going to go up? As of this morning, the SBA has approved more than $106 million to disaster survivors on the ground in Maui. We continue to take applications, continue to do outreach to make sure that people are aware that we are there as a resource. And SBA is uniquely positioned as the only federal agency that to this scale and scope can help renters, businesses, homeowners, and private nonprofits. So across Hawaii. We're helping to bring the disaster relief, not only in long-term lending, but for the first time ever, aggressively bringing a whole of SBA approach to make sure that beyond lending, uh, other resources in this agency are being made available to the disaster survivors in Maui. I've never been there, but just looking at the footage that I saw and reading about it, it didn't seem like it was a very conglomerized area. It seemed like a lot of people were making a living, you know, whether it was being a diving instructor or like you said, just renting out a house because it's in such a beautiful area. Is that what you gathered in your investigations? It is. It was also my first time ever to be on Maui. And so it was a great learning opportunity in terms of the culture and looking beyond the extensive data that we have done to make sure that we can refine our programs to meet disaster survivors. Being on the ground gives you such an incredible context. The vast majority of folks on the island are somehow tied to tourism for the economy. So having uh, met with local officials, disaster survivors, the administrator herself went to a shelter to connect with disaster survivors directly. And when we heard loud and clear was tourism is such a critical part of the economy that we need to deliver on that. It's not just important for those businesses, but, you know, as you know, 50% of employees across this country are tied back to a small business. And so, for example, one of the things Administrator Guzman did was a very first ever approach. We quickly changed some rulemaking to ensure that all of Hawaii could apply for economic injury disaster lending. That is, if you are a business, for example, but you did not suffer physical damage, but you're seeing a downturn in your business because of the tourism dip, is that they could apply for economic injury. And that's critically important because those employees are of Hawaii from Maui, and we want to make sure that they get disaster relief if they were impacted personally. Uh, But we also don't want to see added consequences for that community uh, if they start losing their jobs and those kinds of things that would happen if businesses didn't have the resources they needed to stay open. I was wondering if you could expand on that data gathering point that you mentioned, other than folks, you know, coming to you with applications and telling you exactly what happened to them. What other mechanisms are at SBA's disposal for finding folks who may not even know that they qualify for SBA assistance? One, doing a lot of education. In terms of data, we have a very good sense of where the damage happened, where the damage was physically, not only in Lahaina, which obviously the most devastated, that historic part of the island, but also other parts of the community that may have seen physical damage. And so they're working very closely to see what is the best way to approach disaster survivors, 
where they might be housed, being able to go working with the American Red Cross and local officials to be able to provide that information, be respectful of people's locations right now as they may be in non-congregate shelters, they may be elsewhere, but making sure that they get that information. And also uh, through our data analysis, looking at the businesses on Maui and other parts of the island that may have been impacted. So we are targeting to make sure that those folks that unfortunately may have lost family members, but also lost their property, that we do targeted outreach to them. And then for businesses that we do that in a culturally appropriate way as well, to make sure that they know that even if they didn't have physical damage, they can come to SBA for that. And one thing that the administrator did just a week and a half ago was to host a listening session with community leaders, business leaders, civic leaders in Maui to hear directly from them what they saw as the challenges were, and not simply go in and saying, here's what we can deliver, but saying, what do you need? And then coming back and looking at our programs very extensively and to see how we can bring a whole of government approach to make sure that we're delivering on the president's promise to the people of Maui and the administrator Guzman's direction to bring the whole of SBA to the ground to help people recover. What can you tell me about a business recovery center? Who's involved in it and what does it include? A business recovery center is basically a one-stop shop where people can come and connect with the Small Business Administration to see what we have available. You know, one of the things that people know us most for is low interest, long-term disaster lending to give businesses, homeowners, renters, and private nonprofits the capital they need to be able to, one, repair the damage and rebuild, but also mitigate and be able to recover economically. But when they come to a center, we will help them with their application. We will do some education about the program. And now, thanks to the whole of SBA approach that the administrator has directed us to do, connecting them with other programs. So if you came in for a loan and you got it, we'll certainly expedite that for you, but we'll also connect you with other SBA resources. So we're not just doing lending. How do we get your business in the queue for uh, for government contracting? How do we connect you with mentors and other resource partners to help make sure that not only you rebuild in a mitigated way, but what can we do to make sure that your business is more resilient by its processes and, and how it continues to do business in the future? And that said, uh, if you come and decide you don't want a loan in your business, we're still going to connect you with those other SBA resources to make sure that we can help disaster survivors in the way that they need those resources. This one is kind of a curiosity question. You know, it's been a harrowing past five years for small businesses. And then, you know, something disastrous like this happens. Have there been any lessons learned that SBA has garnered from small business assistance loans that they've given in the past two or three years that are going to be applied to this effort and future efforts? SBA learned a lot from the COVID response and the work that SBA has been doing on the ground for years now when it comes to disasters. And some of those are already in play. Administrator Guzman issued a historic change to our policy. As a result of COVID, for example, we, we learned that people needed a little bit more breathing room. They were already paying off some other loans, the resources rebounding from the COVID economy. So now, and this came a permanent just a couple of days before the wildfire in Maui. Now, if you get an SBA loan, your first payment is deferred for 12 months and zero interest. So if you're a business owner, that gives you a lot of room to get the capital that you need today to start your recovery process, but you don't have to worry about that first payment and you don't accrue interest for an entire year to help you with those capital access issues. And the same goes for homeowners as well. This is especially important in Maui where the recovery is going to be a long time. You saw that community that was so severely impacted and those buildings no longer there. They're going to need some time. And so that low interest, uh, long-term loan, that deferment for 12 months with zero interest is critical. Uh, we've also learned the chronic stressors that businesses are facing across this country, sometimes disaster after disaster after disaster. And it can be challenging out there when capital is a big issue. 
One of the things we're also doing is a reconsideration program to make sure that we are taking a real honest look for someone that may have been declined. We did this, started this in Florida. We are amping this up in Maui. So if you come to us and you're declined for an SBA loan for your business, we will connect with you and tell you why. And with partners on the ground, we will have those resource partners walk you through the process and try to get you to a yes. And some of those are just some of the things that happened during disaster. Biddlings and Bergdown, you may have had your paperwork. You may have had your records. And so what we're doing now, rather than declining you just because of that, we're going to connect you with your resource partner. It could be a local partner, a state partner, our federal partners across the federal federal family, helping you find that paperwork, helping you get that in so we can have a successful application for you. Francisco Sanchez Jr. is Associate Administrator in the Small Business Administration's Office of Disaster Recovery and Resilience. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.